Well, won't you take your copy of God's Word and open with us to Matthew chapter 15. Now, if you don't have a copy of the Word of God, it'll be on the screen here momentarily. Matthew 15, we're going to be in verses 21 through verse 28. I'm sure you've seen it before. I'm pretty confident you've probably noticed it. Some people use the smallest of inconveniences, maybe we can call them grievances, you know, our first world problems, and they use that as support to support their lack of faith in Jesus. While there's some other people who are clinging to the hope of heaven as they walk through hell on earth. Have you noticed that? That some people have every opportunity and every reason to believe that raised in a in the church, that in a biblical family, hear the gospel all the time, yet they choose not to believe. And then there's some who have no business believing. They've never been exposed to a biblical family. They hadn't grown up in church, and they hear this good news, this glorious gospel, and they believe. They've got no business believing yet. They believe. That describes the lady in our text today in Matthew 15. And it's a strange situation. And, a, and Jesus acknowledges how strange it is by making this strange statement. This is what Jesus says to her. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Very strange statement. And so today I want to speak to you on the subject, who let the dogs in? Who let the dogs in? All right, now that's out of the way, right? You're thinking it, need to say it, so there we go. We're going to start in verse 21. We're going to walk through these verses and seek to answer that question. Who let the dogs in? So look at verse 21. The Bible says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Or Sidon. Now, (laughs) what's happening here? Notice the and, that's an important word because it connects us to the previous text. And that gives us the context of what's happening here. In the previous text, Jesus has had yet another run-in with these Pharisees and scribes, these so-called experts in the law. (laughs) And their rituals and their rules ruled the day. And they believed that the only people that could be saved were number one, Jews, Secondly, only the Jews who kept the whole law, even the laws they added to the law. (laughs) They looked at the outside of a person. They didn't look at the inside of a person. So Jesus tells them in the previous text, listen, it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean because it comes from their heart. Big emphasis there on the heart. And Jesus wanted to take the time to teach his disciples. This is a teachable moment for his disciples. He didn't want his disciples to miss what matters most. In other words, Jesus is saying, what is hot and happening to you does not matter as much as what is hot and happening in you. So what matters most is not what is hot and happening out there. It's what is hot and happening in here. And he wants to drive that point home. And so, 
we see Jesus always starts with the heart. And think about that. That shouldn't surprise us. I mean, one of the central themes of the whole Bible is the centrality of the heart. Think about the days of Noah. Genesis 6. God's about to destroy the world with a flood. And this is what the Bible says in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. And then in Deuteronomy 6 we read, You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. And then we read, The fool says in his heart in Psalm 14, There is no God. In other words, long before you say it with your lips, you've said it in your heart. Again, the Bible says, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus also said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, church, what has your heart has you. The centrality of the heart is a central theme in Scripture Listen to this one. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. When Peter is preaching at Pentecost, the Bible says, now when they heard, they were cut to the heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified. Paul said in Colossians three fifteen, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Centrality of the heart is a central theme in Scripture. And so Jesus takes the time to take his disciples and go on what we might call a staff retreat to this different region. It's not a Jewish region. It's a Gentile region. It's like Jesus is going from the promised land into the pagan land. Why is he going from this Jewish region to this Gentile region. You know, rightly understood so, the Gospel of Matthew is, is viewed as probably the most Jewish of the Gospels, right? But an argument can be made, it, it's also one of the most Gentile, if not the most Gentile, of the Gospels. It begins with a genealogy, and guess who's in the genealogy of Jesus? Gentiles. The visit from the Magi, guess where they were from? They're Gentiles. The faith of the Roman centurion, Gentiles. The faith of the Canaanite woman, Gentile. The Roman centurion at the cross who said Jesus is the Son of God, Gentile. Jesus saying there will be many come from east and west, Gentile. And recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The book ends. How, how does Matthew end? The Great Commission. Guess what? It's very Gentile. You'll make disciples of all nations. So the book ends of this Jewish book is very Gentile with a genealogy and the Great Commission. So here's what Jesus is doing. Why is Jesus going to a Gentile region? What Jesus is doing is he's modeling, don't miss this, he's modeling the Great Commission before he mandates the Great Commission. He's showing his disciples before he sends them. He's going to model it for them before he mandates it. Now, I know there's been a lot of mandates over the past few years, right? A lot of investigations our government's been involved in that not all of us agree on. 
But praise God, I believe there's now finally a, a government investigation we can all agree on. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has launched an investigation to learn why are McDonald's ice cream machines always broken. It's an official investigation. You can go to mcbroken.com and you can look up the McDonald's in your area to see if the ice cream machine is broken or not. Last time I looked, the one in Red Bank, broken. It's broken. Listen, we will not all agree on wearing or not wearing masks. We won't all agree on that mandate, but I think we can all agree on working ice cream machines, right? Well, long before these mask mandates were instituted in our nation, a task was mandated by Jesus. It's the Great Commission. And there's no opt-out option on the Great Commission. There is none. And so Jesus is going to, he's just not going to say, y'all go do this. He says, I want you to watch me do this, then you go do this. So he's going to model it for them. And so that's where we arrive in verse 22. Notice what the Bible says. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region. Listen, this region is the same region where 900 years earlier, the prophet Elijah was fleeing from King Ahab. It's that area. This is the This is the home of Queen Jezebel who introduced Baal worship to the northern kingdom of Israel. This is a very Gentile, non-Jewish area. And when you go to a Gentile area, guess what you're going to encounter? Gentiles. So here comes a Canaanite woman from that very region. And she came out, the Bible says, she was crying, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. You know, this Canaanite woman had everything going against her. In a first century Jewish perspective, it was not looked upon as positive to be a woman. They were often viewed lower than slaves. Some rabbis would pray, Yahweh, thank you for not making me a woman. It was terrible. So she had that going against her. She was a woman. Secondly, what she had going against her, she was a Gentile. Jews didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. Number three, she was a Canaanite woman. Meaning what? Well, the Canaanites, mortal enemies of Israel. She had that going against her. Not only that, she was unclean. Why? Because her daughter had a demon. And if the disciples got next to her, they'd be deemed unclean. So she's got the deck is stacked against her. And there's no reason at all for her to believe that Jesus would help her. She's got to be thinking, man, am I fighting a losing battle here? Am I dead in the water here? Am I about to enter into an exercise of futility here? She tried everything else. The doctors couldn't help her. The pagan witch doctors couldn't help her. The pagan idolatry in her city couldn't help. The altars of the pagan idols couldn't help. The pagan priests couldn't help. She's at the end of her rope. Don't you know that's where hope begins? The beginning of of hope is the end of our rope. Some of you are here today, and you may be at the end of your rope, but I'm telling you, that's the beginning of hope. Hey, when you come to the end of yourself, you come to the beginning of God. And that's where she is. And so here she is. She comes crying out. Now, how did she hear that Jesus was there? I don't know how she heard Jesus was there. We're not told that. But here's what we do know. 
that this Jesus who cannot not be noticed, (laughs) he just can't not be noticed, she noticed that. She noticed there was something about this Jesus. He he healed that woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. There's, There's something about this guy. I've got to go check. I've got to go see who this, who this is. And she comes in a very humble, persistent fashion. And look what she says. Oh, Lord, son of David, my daughter is oppressed by a demon. What is she asking? What is her plea? What is her cry? And she comes crying out. It means that she keeps asking. She never stops asking. And every parent gets this, right? How far will you go if your child is sick? Physically, mentally, spiritually. How far will you go? Well, to ask the question is to answer it, isn't it? You go as far as you had to go. As long as it takes. This woman's no different. We know nothing about this daughter. We're not told. Apparently, it's not important why she has the demon or how she got the demon. It's not important whose fault it is. Man, why do we focus so much on that? Why why do we spend so much time focusing on why we're hurting rather than focusing on the one who can help? (laughs) And she's focused on the one who can help. And she's, her plight is, I mean, you've got to think of how heavy this is for her. I mean, she carried this child for nine months. She birthed this child. She fed this child, raised this child. Heard her first words, saw her first step, first day of school. They went shopping together. You go down the list. And now she's been sick before, but nothing like this. She doesn't even recognize her as she's oppressed by this demon, and she doesn't know what to do. And she's asking a question every parent asks. Is my child going to be all right? Is my child going to make it? Or, or, is he or she going to be all right? That's her question. She's coming to the one who can help her with the question, Oh Lord, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And not only is she asking, Hey, is my child going to be all right? Let's look at who she's asking. She recognizes Jesus for who he is. She calls him Lord. Not only that, she says, You're the son of David. This is a Gentile recognizing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah when the Jews weren't even recognizing him as the Jewish Messiah. Wow. You see, the gospel is not philosophy. The gospel is not a social agenda. The gospel is not a political party. The gospel is not some kind of program or philosophy. The gospel is Jesus Christ crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, reigning right now, coming soon this is the gospel and she believes it so notice verse 23 look at this but he did not answer her a word how did Jesus respond to her wailing and her yelling and her begging and her crying out crickets silence You been there? You been there? (laughs) Pleading to God, seeking God, praying to God, and you get nothing back. Why is God silent? What does it mean when he's silent? It doesn't always mean no. Sometimes it means not yet, not now, not this. Doesn't always mean no. 
in this particular situation, why is Jesus being silent? Why, why doesn't God just answer our prayer when we pray them? I mean, he, he's able. Why doesn't he just answer our prayers every time we think of it or pray it? Why doesn't he answer? You know why? Because you'd take him for granted. That's why. And I'd take him for granted. And we'd take him for granted. And that's why James says the fervent prayers, the boiling prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Notice this woman does not stop asking. She won't do it. The silence here is really for two reasons. One is to draw out the woman's faith. Jesus is testing and teaching all at the same time. He's testing her. He's teaching his disciples. He's testing her to draw out her faith. He's teaching his disciples to drown out their fear. That's what's happening here. Jesus is setting this up to be a huge teachable moment. And notice how he finally answered. Look what he said. He said, he said to her, not a word. And Well, first of all, look what the disciples said. The disciples began begging. Look what they said. Hey, send her away, for she's crying out after us, verse 23. They just wanted to stop. They're just tired of hearing it. And here's how Jesus answered. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, at first glance, Jesus seems to be agreeing with the disciples, does he not? Seems to be agreeing with them. You're right, boys. You're right. I'm the Jewish Messiah. I owe this Gentile nothing. I don't owe her anything. You're absolutely right. It seems to be that way at first glance, but when we look a little closer, what's really happening? Jesus, again, he's setting them up to teach them a huge, eternal principle. And there is some order to the gospel. We know that. We know Jesus came first for the Jew, then for the Greek. What does that mean? How does that play out in the gospels? Well, when Jesus came, he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Meaning that the church, the Gentiles, the explosion of the church is not going to happen in Scripture until Jesus is dead, until he dies on the cross for your sins and mine, until they bury him. He's raised to life. He ascends to the Father. Then he sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit births the church. So we know, yes, there is some order here. That's why Paul said that the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Greek. There is some order here. But notice what this lady does. Yes, it's true. Jesus came first for the Jew, but not only for the Jew. Look at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Hey, I'll argue that this prayer right here may be the greatest prayer in all of Scripture. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, recognizing who he is. He's Lord. And then just saying, I don't know what to say, so help me. I'm at the end of my rope. Help me. There's nowhere else to turn. Help me. I'm at the end of myself. Help me. Not, hey, Lord... I'm here when you need me. Hey, Lord, just, just text me. I'll help you out. Give me a call if you need some help. No, it's Lord, help me. Lord, help me. What a picture of both humility and persistence all at the same time. Lord, help me. And then look what Jesus said. And he answered. 
It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, let's be honest about this. Even in our overly hypersensitive culture, this may be the cruelest thing you've read all week long. It comes off as very cruel. Number one, Jesus just ignores her. It doesn't say a word to her. And then when he does speak to her, he calls her a dog. Man, that's cruel, isn't it? You know, the dumbest thing I read this week was written by someone who was not an uneducated person. The dumbest thing I read this week was not written by somebody who was illiterate. It wasn't written by somebody who had a, has a low IQ. It wasn't written by somebody who's mentally challenged in any way. The dumbest thing I read this week was written by an academic, a scholar, a Ph.D. You know how you pronounce Ph.D., right? That's about it. This, this, this Canadian academic, I think what happened is she took the milk crate challenge and fell and hit her head. I think that's what happened. Here's what she wrote. Listen to this. Mm. I've now officially joined the lowercase movement. The lowercase movement. To reject the symbols of hierarchy displayed in capital letters. We resist acknowledging the power structures that oppress and offend and join the movement that does not capitalize. Apparently capital letters are offensive. And oppressive. What am I going to do with my caps lock on my MacBook? What, well, passwords. You got to have a. It's got to be case sensitive. What do you do there? I, I don't know. Apparently, this is a thing. And it wasn't on Babylon B. It was real. So that you know, when, when you come across things like that, you think, man, I don't know if I read anything as dumb as that this week. But then you read something like this, you think, man, that's pretty cruel. I mean, what's, what's Jesus doing here? I mean, that doesn't sound like the Lord, but you need to understand what Jesus is doing here. Notice what he says. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dogs here, there's two words in the Greek for dogs. One is a stray dog, and one is a domestic pet, like a puppy, like a little dog that you have in your home. And that's, that's the word Jesus uses here is the domestic pet. That, that may soften the blow a little bit, but it's still a blow. He called her a dog. And not D-A-W-G, but D-O-G, right? And so, so, so what is Jesus? He's painting a picture. And the picture he's painting is, okay, the children at the table, those are the Jews, the Jewish people. And the dogs under the table, those are the Gentiles, you and me. That's the picture he's painting for her. You need to know your condition. You need to know your place. You're not at the table yet, you're under the table. Because I first came for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so he wants her to understand who he is, he's Lord, and who she is. Unworthy to receive grace. And that's where we have to get to. He wanted her to understand that if she's ever going to get grace, she has to get to the place where she understands she doesn't deserve grace. If you believe you deserve grace, you're not going to get it you got to get to the place where you understand, oh, I don't deserve grace. Then you get it. Then you get grace. 
It's a gift freely given to those who recognize they need mercy and grace. But here's our problem. We don't understand who God is. We have too low of a view of God. Way too low. And we have way too high of a view of ourselves. Way too high. We think of ourselves so better than we really are. We look at others and say, man, I'm not as bad as them. Their sin's worse than mine. Listen, no, it's not. Their sin is not worse than yours. Sin is what separates us from God. Not some kind of level of sin, but sin separates us from God. And we need to see that our sin is worse than our suffering. Our sin is worse than what's going on out there. What's important is what's happening in here. And Jesus wants her to see herself for who she is. Not at the table, but under the table. See, Jesus wants us to know that we're outside the covenant of grace and we don't get in unless we come by grace. We need to understand that our worst day under grace is better than a, a million of our best days on our own. We need to understand that. Grace, grace, grace. And so look at verse 27. How would you respond to somebody looking at you in the face and calling you a dog? Verse 27. She said, yes, Lord. What? Wait a minute. She didn't cancel him? She didn't block him? She didn't unfriend him? She didn't unfollow him? She didn't rant on Facebook about him? She didn't call Peter or whatever it is and say, I need to be called a companion and not a pet? She didn't do any of that? No, what'd she do? She didn't agree with him? She didn't say, I'm offended? She didn't say, wait a minute, what'd you call me? Or, uh, no, that's offensive. No, what does she do? She agrees with him. I'll tell you, some of you, you need to get to the place where you stop disagreeing with God and start agreeing with him about who you are and who he is. She agrees with him. Yes, Lord. Fascinating. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table wow in other words she's saying yes Lord you did come first for the Jews yes Lord you start with the Jews but you don't stop with the Jews I just need a crumb of your grace just a crumb from the master's table man she recognized precisely who she is in light of who he is. So church, here we go. What does this mean? You're a dog and I'm a dog. That's what it means. Now you may be a poodle. You may be a Rottweiler. You may be a Lab or a Chihuahua. You may be a Pug. They're funny looking, but you may be one. But we're all dogs. And we're all in need of the crumb of grace from our master's table. Listen. Dogs may be dogs, but praise God, even dogs get fed. Some of them better than people. Listen, an atheist says there is no God. An agnostic might say, well, there might be a God. Humanists say, let's remove God. Pornography says, sex is God. Greed says, money is God. Pride says, power is God. Satan says you can be your own God. 
I tell you, I'd much rather be a D-O-G dog. I'd much rather be called a D-O-G dog by Jesus than a little G-O-D God by Satan any day of the week. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then listen to what Jesus says to her. He answered, O woman, great is your faith. Mega is your faith. That's the word in the Greek. Mega is your faith. And he doesn't say this to a man. He says it to a woman. He doesn't say it to a Jew. He says it to a Gentile. He doesn't say it to a a priest. He says it to a pagan who has come to faith in him alone, by grace alone, through that very faith alone. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And no one is above the need of God's grace. So here's our takeaway truth uh, as we look at this text today. Faith in Jesus is what makes us family. Faith in Jesus is what makes us family. Look at what Jesus said, the last thing Jesus said. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Hey, faith in Jesus is what makes us family. I've got three concluding thoughts, and we'll wrap this up. Number one, the son of David lets the dogs in via faith. Hey, the son of David, Jesus, lets us in by faith, via faith. Meaning what? Meaning this, that all can be saved, but all won't be saved. But all need to be saved, all must be saved. Saved from what? You say, what do I need to be saved from? I don't need to be saved. You need to be saved from yourself, from sin, from Satan's deception, from God's wrath, from hell. You need to be saved. And you must come to the Savior to be saved. There's only one who can save us. Why? It's Jesus. Why is he the only one? Here's why. Jesus, the Son of God, died like a dog. So us dogs could become... Sons and daughters of God. He died like a dog on a cross in your place and in my place. So we could be insiders. He died as an outsider. He's the only one that's done that. That's not cruel to say that. That's not hateful to say that. To not say that is hateful. That we even have any way at all is amazing. That he would even include us. And he has. So if you're going to be saved, you have to come through Jesus or you, you're not going to be saved. The way, the truth, and the life. The Lord Jesus. So what do we do? We have to admit we're a dog. We have to admit we're sinners and we're unworthy and we don't deserve grace. And then we come by faith and receive it. All can be saved, but all will not be saved. Second thought, the son of David drives the demons out by faith. Parents, understand this. Jesus is the one who drives the demons out. And he does it by faith. By your faith. If you're a parent, listen. Maybe you've got a wayward son or daughter. and Maybe you're at the point where you've written them off or you're showing them tough love. And there's places and times for that. But let, let me, there's never a time or place for you to stop praying for them. Never. Don't you ever stop praying for them. Don't you ever stop seeking God. Remember, we don't know anything about this daughter. We don't know 
how she got the demon. We, we're not, that's not important. What's important is the humility and the persistence and the faith of the parent. Parents, don't you stop. Don't you stop praying. Burt Jones, long time pastor here at Red Bank Baptist Church, told me before he died, Bert looked at me and said, Pastor, don't you give up on prayer. Don't you give up on prayer. Don't stop praying. Don't stop asking. Because he's the only one that can drive them out. He's it. Number three, the son of David lets his disciples in on the truth about faith. He's teaching his disciples. He takes this and uses it as a, as a huge teaching moment to let them understand. The scribes and Pharisees would not have gotten within a hundred yards of that Canaanite woman. Because they look at the outside. Jesus says, guys, you got to look at the heart. And he looks at this Canaanite woman and says, oh, great is your faith. And he's teaching his disciples a hard truth. that Jesus starts with the heart. And the Bible speaks much of the heart. The Bible describes all kinds of hearts. Hard hearts, new heart, amen to a new heart. Tranquil heart, understanding heart, evil heart, wise heart, foolish heart. And on and on it goes. Here's what we need to understand, ladies and gentlemen. Guys, our wondering eyes... Long before our eyes wander, our heart has wandered. Your eyes will not go where your heart is not already gone. Ladies, your words and your gossip and your, our speech and our talk, it, it will not go where our heart is not already gone. Our thoughts, our bodies, everything that we do and think and say, it goes where our heart's already gone. And Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's a matter of the heart here. We start with the heart, Jesus says. And the Bible speaks much about guarding your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. How do I guard my heart? You guard your heart by having a heart toward God. That's how you guard it. Set your heart on a trajectory toward God. Your problem in your life is not those imperfect people out there. Your problem is the imperfect person in here. That's your problem. It's my problem. It's the motive, the thoughts, the idols of our heart. And Jesus is saying, listen. You have to understand who you are in light of who I am. What is the condition of your heart? I'm so thankful that, that, that David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God. Oh, create in me a clean heart, a new heart. Because that's our hope, is that there's one who has authority and power over our hearts. So let's all cry out, Lord, help me. Lord, help me today. What a great prayer. I'm going to challenge you to pray that prayer today. Maybe you need to pray, Lord, help me in, in regards to a family situation, a work situation, a school situation. Lord, help me. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. Parents, keep praying. Lord, help me. Help me pray for my child and not stop praying for them. Lord, help me. Trust in you. Lord, help my unbelief today. Help me put my faith and trust in you as my Savior today. Help me recognize you who you are like this Canaanite woman did and who I am like she did. And Lord, help me today. Listen, faith in Jesus is what makes us family. 
Faith in Jesus. Just like Abraham. Faith like Abraham had in the God of Abraham is what makes us family. Faith like John the Baptist had in the one John baptized is what makes us family. Faith like the Canaanite woman had in the the God who can. That's what makes us family. Faith like David had in the son of David. That's what makes us family. Faith like the fisherman had in the one who said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's what makes us family. Faith like the harvester said and the one who said go and and, hey, the harvest is plentiful. One who had faith in the God of the harvest, that's what makes us family. Faith like Isaiah had in the God of Israel is what makes us family. Faith like Lazarus had in the one who said I'm the resurrection and the life, that makes us family. Faith like Mary Magdalene had in the one who was born of Mary, that's what makes us family. Faith like Nathaniel had in the one Jesus of Nazareth, that's what makes us family. Faith like the thief on the cross had in the one who wore the crown of thorns. This is what makes us family. Father, thank you so much that facing our fears does not make us family.